0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the One Thing Podcast. I'm Nikki Miller.
1: And I'm Chris Dixon.
0: And today we are talking with Renee Rodriguez. This is such an incredible conversation. Renee is a master of influence, a master of storytelling, and really you'll hear on this a master of speaking in general. And I love the Amplify formula that he walked us through of frame, message, tie down, and also the power of positioning, the power of stories, the power of influence, and the importance of being able to sell no matter what position you're in.
1: Yeah. And what I loved about this conversation was not only focusing on storytelling, but but really your story and the ability to tell your story and look back on who you are and who you've become and why that's so valuable. And also what he shared about being curious and, and coming with a sense of curiosity, and what that enables for you. And if you guys like what you hear in this conversation and you want to learn more about how you can bring the principles and the tools, the one thing to your life and to your business, then visit the slash coaching where you can learn more about our coaching packages, our group coaching packages and book a free coaching session with one of our certified trainers and coaches to learn more and see how we can support you. So let's go talk to Renee Rodriguez.
0: Welcome back everybody to the One Thing Podcast. We are here with the Renee Rodriguez. I'm so excited to be here with you. Renee is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, leadership advisor, and transformational speaker coach. For the last 27 years, he's been researching and applying behavioral neuroscience to solve some of the toughest challenges in Leadership, Sales, and Change. He's the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Amplify Your Influence, which was selected as a best business book 2022 by Summary.com. Renee has also shared the stage with many, uh, uh, many uh, very famous speakers, Ed Milet, Tony Robbins, John Gordon, Gary Vaynerchuk, Ryan Holiday, and many more. And we are so privileged to have him here with us today. Welcome, Renee. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you. And thanks so much for having me here.
0: I was personally, this was a selfish request because I got to see you at an event that we both spoke at and I literally watched you live on stage train someone on how to present their story at a higher level and how to speak at a higher level. And I swear it was instantaneous. You you snapped your fingers, said some things that felt like magic, and all of a sudden she was an entirely new presence. And I have so many questions about everything that you do, but can we start off with that? Where did you learn how to do that? Where does that skill set come from? Walk me through how that happened.
2: Well, so what's interesting is that... How did I learn? I don't know how I learned, but I know that it comes from a belief that we all have a story. And I think is more over a test, you know, over the years to say, you know, people say, did you plant that person? And the answer is no, ever, never have. And, and, you know, one person said, I prepared somebody and they told me afterwards and it didn't turn out really good because, you know, they were too, too ready. And it was too, it just didn't feel right. But when you, when you realize that we all have a story, number one, and there are some really easy, low-hanging fruit things that we can do to appear more confident and to actually behave and believe and to speak more confidently. And you align those and you ask the right question to get somebody to tap into a story that already exists, then everything tends to align pretty quickly. And so it's, it's one of those that, to me, I remember a long time ago, I watched one of my favorite speakers. Um, and of course I'm going to forget his name right now because he, from a long time ago, he wrote a good book, Benjamin Zander. He was at the time, the, the, the conductor for the Boston Philharmonic and he would always go to a city and bring, uh, a, a student, like it would not even bring a student. He would call the city and to say, Hey, is there a student that wants to learn or be coached by me either on the piano or on the cello in front of an, or just be coached by me. And he wouldn't tell him anything else and of course there would be a student selected and they would come to this conference they didn't know they were about to be coached live in front of 3000 executives and this kid shows up and i remember watching the first one that i saw she was a cellist and you know just a beautiful young lady just playing the cello very proper and and he would coach her and all of a sudden he he get w- tapped into her emotion versus the proper nature of how to pl- play but moreover you know, playing from the place of, of almost like leaning off of a chair and putting her heart and soul into it. And all of a sudden you just saw this completely different player emerge. And it was so powerful that it brought everybody to tears, just watching a different movement that way. And I always thought there had to be a way to achieve that with story. And so that was the, the, the inspiration behind it. And then just, you know, practicing a few thousand times,
0: (laughs) just a few thousand times. just a few. Well, I think that that's such an important point in, in the process of speaking. I think so often people hear great speakers or, or really to, to that story, someone who's a beautiful musician, and they think to themselves, wow, that person must have an, a natural and innate skill. And ultimately, what that usually comes from is hours and, hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. So you talk about this in the book, but I'd love for you to talk about it here and to share a little bit about the book uh, foremost, but I'd love for you to talk about here how you teach people how to practice this. How do they choose the stories? How do they practice the stories? How do they outline the stories? Talk to me about that.
2: Sure. Well, the, the thing to understand about storytelling, personal storytelling specifically, is that it's a reflective process, not a forward creative process. And so a lot of times people say, I've got to create my story. I'm like, well, how do you create something that already exists? That's like saying, I want to manufacture antiques. You don't manufacture an antique. You go find it. You uncover it. You take the dust off, pull the cobwebs off. And sometimes you got to restore it. It's been through damage. And a lot of our stories of who we are have been through that. And so first getting people to look backwards is one thing. And then you got to learn how to do it. And so there's so many things that get in the way of our past story and who we are and what we believe. And so we got to be able to get past those first. A lot of that is resistance. Some people don't want to be vulnerable. Some people quite frankly forget the difficulties that they went through to get somewhere. In fact, that's one of the things I challenge leaders and speakers on: is to stop telling people what you do is easy and effortless. The, in and I say, you know, it's like going to a, a, um, a virtuoso on the piano and saying, "Wow, it must be so. You must be so lucky that you were born with this." And they look at you like you're crazy. You know, eight hours a day for twenty years. You think I'm that was born with that? No way. And it's the same with story. It's the same with speaking. And so we'll start with this question of, you know, what makes you unique? And I've come to find that that question is magical because what it does is, is it's sort of a backdoor approach for someone to begin the conversation around what they value. And if you say, this is what makes you unique, you're not going to share something that you're not proud of one. And if you're proud of what you're sharing, that means you probably value it and you want to live into it. If you value it and want to live into it, that probably means it reflects your personal values. And so it's a backdoor approach to getting to this that, that difficult thing to identify, which is our personal values. And if I know that it's personal values, then I can use some science. And the science says that our personal values are formed between the ages of 9 and 13. And so if they're formed between the ages of 9 and 13, then I go, okay, so something must have happened during, during that time. This is logical, deductive reasoning to me. And so I start asking the question. Almost like, you know, Indiana Jones excavation, right? You know, you're a historical archaeologist, if you will, for someone's story. And you start asking questions. So what happened? And then I realized that there's two types of stories that come up. It's either a lighthouse story. Somebody was around during that time with that value that was the, the beacon of light. They showed you the example you wanted to be. But for most people, I wanted to give them a safe way to talk about the tough side, which would be what I call the foghorn, the people that didn't show up, the story that didn't work. The, the, the person that was supposed to be there and inspiring and wasn't. The one that was supposed to be happy and that wasn't. The one that was supposed to be clean that was dirty, so they decided to be clean. And if they got a foghorn story, it's really fun to see that most people that have foghorns spend most of their life trying to be a lighthouse for that area. And so that's sort of the process, and you kind of deduce your way through it. And you know, we've practiced with some wordsmithing. It, it all kind of comes together pretty quick.
0: one of the things that you talk about and i and i can't remember forgive me if i if i heard this in i've watched a few of your of your podcasts and youtubes and and also read the book so forgive me if i get the where i remember this from wrong but i remember you talking about that our brains take references from the past and one of the things that we do an exercise on, especially when we do goal setting retreats is identifying what people's values are. Because once you understand that about someone, it helps you to contextualize, obviously, what's important to them, and also how to communicate with them often, and how to understand how to present goals and, and maybe in this case, present, present a story. And I remember you talking about a woman, I think you were training her as an, uh, for like an executive interview or something of that nature. And you talked about how she presented something in her framing but because she didn't set up the frame in the story you could have received it anyway can you talk about that when it comes to values and how you present things like that because i think it's just such an interesting and important point not only for storytelling but also for general communication
2: so i'm having kind of an aha moment right now and if if my, one of my first uh interactions with and back early earlier on on understanding values was came from you guys actually in the big why in that in in gary's and jay's what's the big why and asking that question three times and that that pyramid that would come out and i've got an amazing story actually of, of one of my best friend's wife who did that exercise directly from the book and she was a real estate agent and she talked about her big why she wanted to do this you know personal development to show her kids that she could do this It was just beautiful instead of digging deeper and deeper into what the core value was and she died two weeks after she did it and i remember her husband bringing that document to the funeral and i read it as a part of the eulogy and it was just amazing to see how her why was no different than most of ours And yet, and I've used that story and saying, you know, you lose somebody too soon. I always go back, what would she say? And she'd probably say that, you know, now is the time that we have to to live that. And she had the same values set that we did. And so maybe it's one of those ways to really get us to really think about what's important to us now. And so uh, the reason I showed that story was it's, you asked kind of where it came from. And I think one of the first influences was the work that you all do. And so one, I'm a fan of the work that you guys do. And two, I think it it can't be spoken and 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 said enough the importance of being able to dig for that. And so, what I did now in the story you're referring to is the story of Janice. And Janice was, um, you know, for for hiding her real name, was an executive at a very large organization and was interviewing for a billion dollar business unit position. And she was a typical executive, MBA. She had a PhD. She was incredible when she walked into the room i mean it was her room she had the charisma and she cared and she smiled and but she knew her stuff but she spoke in the way that most executives were taught which was short and concise and to the point and so she had a nine-hour interview that she was preparing for for this position to own a, to run that billion dollar business unit and the first question that we put her through because we were, we were uh, tasked with coaching her to get ready was tell us something you're proud of And she answered short and concise to the point. She said, I got straight A's my last year in school, one of my proudest moments. And so now it was powerful, it was confident, and it was to the point. But it lacked, to your point, Nikki, was it lacked a frame. And so we didn't know how to interpret straight A's my last year in school. And so a frame is a frame of reference. It's the the, the narrative behind the message. What's the story? and our brains need a frame of reference to understand reality because we construct reality through frames of references and narratives since she didn't provide one our brains didn't have one therefore it chose its own and every listener chooses its own to to be able to understand what's in front of them and it chooses them based on their personal experience not based on truth it could have been true but it didn't have access to the truth so it's got to make an assumption based on past experience to best understand the course of events and so if somebody says i got straight as my last year in school they said to me how to go and i said so i started giving her frames i said oh so straight as your last year in school so you're a procrastinator are you going to procrastinate for us as well and she looks at me like i'm crazy and i said oh i'm sorry did mommy and daddy pay for school so you didn't have to work that hard is that what happened and another frame and she's now she's got a tear in her eye and i said janice i didn't mean any of the things that i said i said but you didn't tell us any story or frame behind it. So I don't know what straight A's last year in school means. I do know it was important to you, wasn't it? And she just nodded her head. And I said, why? It took her a minute and a half to compose herself. And she said, when you've been told you're stupid your entire life by adults, you tend to believe them. And something happened my last year in school where I looked myself in the mirror and I said, either I'm going to believe them forever or I'm going to do something about it. So I went out and got the help that I needed, put my nose to the grindstone, and I got straight A's my last year in school. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, now all of a sudden that story is rich. It tells you so much more of who she is and that she overcame adversity. And now you're cheering for her because how dare people speak to a kid that way? And man, it answers the question so differently. It still is missing one piece though, if you remember. Do you remember the last piece that's missing?
0: Oh, don't put me on the spot, Renee. I don't think I do.
2: What's the third part of the formula?
0: It's a, I'm going to call it a hook, but but it's not a hook, right? It's a a frame message. Is it a close?
2: You said frame message. What was the third part?
0: Tie down. Tie down. Tie, tie down.
2: down. Yep. Nice high five. And so the tie down is the third part of the Amplify formula. And that answers the question of what this means to you. And so when we're thinking about most people in most organizations, they train on storytelling, but they don't tie it down to something that is meaningful to the audience. So in an interview, and it's always contextual in this scenario, it's an interview. So what does the story have to do with getting hired? And that's the big thing. So what is it? I told you the story, but without a tie down, it's just a good story. I'll remember you, but I won't act on what you say. And we're talking about influence and influence is about not only capturing attention, but also acting on the information shared. So I got to get people to act. And so the tie down would be followed by, after I say, you know, that I got straight, you know, and um, put my nose to the grindstone, got help, you know, I was told I was stupid. And I'm proud to say I got straight as my last year in school. And so now I can go to Chris and say, Chris, let's say if he's the one hiring me, and I say, Chris, I'm assuming if uh, I do get a chance to work with you and your team, that there are going to be times where our backs are going to be against the wall, and we're going to be facing seemingly insurmountable challenges. But I promise you this, if I get a chance to be on your team, I will be out there next to you, if not out in front, overcoming those challenges in the same way that I did in my own personal life frame, except this time for you and for your team, tied on. And so now I've closed that whole picture of the story was told, to give you a sense of in feeling and understanding who, who I am, my values and my sense of grit, and that I can overcome and persevere and the message I answered it. But then I also said, but this is what this all means to you is that I'm going to be there overcoming any challenge that's in front of me. It's, and I've done it since I was a kid and I'll do it for you. And you can say all that without saying that through the right proper structure of that story.
1: That's interesting. Like the, so powerful, like you have to contextualize the message and and give, like you said, like frame. It's a really wonderful way to to describe it and the tie down. And there's definitely a skill to be having that higher level of awareness, like leveraging the structure to do it. But having the higher level of awareness to know where to tie it to, right, and like how to know how to hook that in, knowing what the, the gap you're trying to fill is, right.
2: For sure, and I think it's it's your. I think you hit it right on the head. The the more that you understand the audience and this is where empathy comes into play, you know, empathy is one of the key components to being very influential as part of emotional intelligence. And if I know who my audience is, in fact, it's the first question that we ask and that we train our our students on is to really ask, you know, who's my audience? It's like in the example that we give would say, would you ever go and play golf and walk up to the tee? Excuse me, walk up and grab your club before you looked at the tee. You wouldn't do that. You, you you show up and you grab your favorite club, which is, let's say it's the driver, and you walk up and you realize you're on the putting green. Now you got to turn around and go back and grab a different different tool. You'd never say, hey, can you go fix the door? You go grab your toolbox and go grab your favorite tool and then show up. They'd be like, "But well, don't you want to assess the situation first? It wouldn't make any sense. You'd never grab the tool before you assess the situation, and yet we do it all the time when we speak. We grab either a story before we know the audience. We start you know, uh, using a technique before we know what we're trying to accomplish. And so there's so many elements that are missing in that process that we're trying to get people to say, you know, it's a club in your bag, but assess the, the course. Is, you know, how long of a shot is it? Is there any water hazards? You know, is, there, is there a sand trap? What's happening and what needs to be fixed? And then look at the tools that you need. And sometimes you don't even need much, much of a tool. It might even be easy if you know the situation and your audience.
1: I, I would be lying if I said I had not walked onto a putting green with a driver by accident before. Like, that has <laughs> definitely happened. <laughs> That's um, why Chris you know, is my li-
0: favorite golf partner.
1: Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I, I listened to uh, a speech that, you're, that you gave, uh, Renee, and it was, it was really interesting. And I think it applies to uh, what you're talking about because you're, you told the story uh, about your experience playing basketball growing up and that you had this incredible challenge to overcome in uh, this transition in your life when your your period of time playing basketball had come to an end and that you had somewhat of a mentor, at least an influence, uh, an executive that was in and around your sphere through your mother, if I believe that she, because of that, you you had some time around him or comfortable and you asked them the question of, okay, what's the one skill that I need to learn to have be in your position at some point in the future? I'm sorry if I'm butchering this. It's got off memory. Mm-hmm. You're doing actually but, great. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Okay, good. And and what you said was, hey, if there's if what he said was learn to sell. There's one skill that you could learn, it's learn to sell, you'll always be employed. And and I thought that was really great because I didn't know who you were speaking to. I just caught this clip and I was, you know, just learning about your your material and and I found it out it was a sales conference, or at least a, there was a, a group of salespeople you're speaking to. And I think that's a really great example of taking your story, framing it. And tying the message down to the audience so they can relate to it, and I think it's just a wonderful example of what you described.
2: Yeah, it's it was funny. I, I was 18, I got cut, and they said, what, what, "What?" And I I just asked, "What's the one thing I got to learn now?" And they said, "Learn to sell." If you learn how to sell, you'll always be employed. And that's what pulled me into selling cookware door to door and learning how to communicate a very difficult concept that you know cookware that was normally you spent either you got to hand me down or you spent 50 bucks on it. Getting them to spend 2500 dollars was a very different animal. And you had to learn this the laws of, of influence and science of communication and you know how to sell and, and and present value. And what was interesting is that there's a second story to that. When I was I was probably in my 30s and I was at a at a restaurant that uh, was on the lake, and, and this guy pulls up and it's Bentley, beautiful Bentley. And I looked at him and I'm like, and I walked up and I said, hey, I said, when I was 18, I asked somebody what I had to be in their shoes to get older. He was an executive and he said, learn how to sell. And if you learn how to sell, you'll always be employed. I said, let me ask you this question. What I, what, what, what's the one thing I got to do now to be able to buy one of those when I get older? He looks at me, he looks at his car and he goes, sell more.
1: he turns around and he
2: walks inside. I was like, that was amazing.
0: (laughs) I love that. Well, what I think is so important about this message, Renee, is that I think often when you hear about learning how to speak, a lot of people contextualize this around, well, I'm not a professional speaker. I don't have to do keynotes. I don't have to be on a podcast. I don't have to do video, whatever it is. So that's not for me. I don't need to sharpen those skills. But the truth is we are all selling all the time, even if you are not in a sales position. We're always trying to position our point or position our message or whatever that is. And so having the ability to communicate articulately and clearly to me has become one of the most important skills, if not the most important skill that I've carried with me through my life. And I love what you said about selling cookware door-to-door because one of the greatest gifts, I mean, I I learned my scale, so sales skills, there we go, couldn't get that out, sales skills in real estate. And I knocked door-to-door to get real estate transactions. And the beauty of that is that you get this repetition in having those conversations. And so by the time you're selling the the more, the bigger products or the more expensive things or whatever it is, you have repetition to our point earlier. One of the first things that we talked about was you get great at things by practicing continuously. So how have you grown? What tools did you use over time? And how do you help contextualize this for people who maybe don't think that because they're not a professional speaker, this matters to them?
2: It's the big question. Well, I'm not in sales. People say that all the time. And I said, well, reframe what you mean by selling. Selling is a communication of value. And in a way that there's one exchange, meaning there's usually a financial exchange. I give you a product or service, and uh, you give me money, or vice versa. But sometimes we're selling time. We're selling investment of energy. We're selling budgetary funds. We're selling, um, will you go on a date with me? We're selling... Will you uh, come work and stop what you're doing to come work with me and join our team from a recruiting standpoint? Sometimes you're selling children to pay attention in class. Sometimes you're selling your kids to stay away from drugs and alcohol. These are all persuasive moments. And so step and zoom out a little bit about what's happening in the sales process. And usually what people do is they demonize the sales process because unfortunately they've been part of one that wasn't healthy or one that was abusive or um, unethical and sadly that that happened for a lot of years and but i i'm actually pretty confident that most consumers are pretty smart these days and we have flushed out the bad salespeople, the bad seeds and those that try to behave that way they're ou- ousted pretty fast and we walk away we know we have choices we can go online and so it's those those techniques don't work the same as they used to and if, if somebody does try it they're not going to be very successful and so we're dealing with an old stigma around something that is age old, that's been around since the beginning of time. I mean, Aristotle was the first person to talk about argumentative thought and persuasion 2,000 years ago. And when we're talking about persuasion and argumentative thought, an argumentative thought, is not arguing with someone. It's creating an argument. It's creating a business case for something. It's the reason and the rationale. If you're a corporate if you are in corporate, you've got you've to make a business case as to why budgets and funds are going to be this way. If you want to take a trip to go see a client, you better make a, a good business case or a good argument for as to why that's important. If you want me to stop spending money in one area to, sp- to spend it in another, you better make a good case and argue a good argument for it at its tr- a certain sense. And so you got to you got to really back away and say that there's a lot more to this. And Aristotle was talking about this 2000 years ago. So it's it's not nothing new. But I think if teachers, let's just say this, if teachers saw themselves and their students as customers, how would that shift versus them being entitled to their attention? They're not entitled to attention. Most teachers are boring. And the good ones are the ones that we need to, oh man, I remember the good ones. They jump on the tables, they dance, they light things on fire. They would capture your attention. And in today's day and age, with, with the amount of uh, screens and the speed in which they're constantly feeding dopamine, it is critical that teachers learn new skill sets that police officers learn how to de-escalate, that that us parents need to learn how to help the process i mean we all need to step up and learn more
0: i think what one of my favorite things that you talk about in this and around this in the book is this idea that often when we hear influence or when we hear persuasion, we interpret it as getting people to do what they don't want to do. And that's part of the villainization of sales or persuasion or, or influence uh, or, or what I would call great communication. And I think to your point, these days, I don't know that people who are great at sales are really convincing anyone to do what they don't want to do. Because you're right, the world is moving so fast and, and the beauty of that is that everything is fairly transparent now. We can we find out pretty quickly if someone is not who they say they are because we have social media, we have reviews, we have things like that. Things don't move as slowly as they used to. What do you say to those people who, who, who frame it that way? How do you help them to overcome that?
2: Well, I think you said it best right there. I said you, people think it's getting people to do something they don't want to do <clears throat> and that has nothing to do with it. Selling and is about uncovering value that hasn't been seen. The best way to, to talk about that, let's say that you had cancer and, or at least, let's say I took a class and this class, uh, and it was really teaching me about a product I really believed in. It was about a machine that could test you for this certain type of cancer. And let's say Nikki, I say to you, I said, you know, Nikki, it seems like you have some of the the symptoms that I read about. I just took this class, so I'm new, I apologize, but man, it seems like you have some of these these symptoms, and I'd love to give you this test, but it's ten thousand dollars. Now, if I came to you and that was my pitch, I'm new. I just took a class, and it seems like you have some symptoms about something that I just saw on say, Facebook. It's like saying, "Hey, I saw a YouTube video or a Facebook video. It has to be true. You know, maybe I saw it on TikTok. You looks like you might have this illness. You'd be willing to spend ten thousand dollars on that?
0: Definitely not.
2: Probably not. You'd be like, uh, "You're crazy." And I'm like, you know what? I'm like, you're right. Sorry, I, at least I tried. Now, six months later, it finds out that you have these symptoms and things aren't going way, and you do have this, this, this cancer, you come back to me and say, Renee, can we do that test? And I'm like, well, what's going on? I said, well, you tell me what's happening. And I go, oh man, Nikki, I'm so sorry. I would have had to do this test at least four months ago. It's too late. How would you feel to me? I had a solution for you and I didn't communicate it well. I didn't sell. You said you weren't interested and I didn't push because what, I didn't want to be pushy. Who's the one that did the disservice? I'm the one who failed you. You'd probably be furious with me. You could have helped me. Well, I just didn't want to be pushy. Well, if you don't believe in your product enough, if you don't truly believe that your product will will do something, then you're in the wrong business. I was taught to learn to care enough to be unreasonable. If you truly believe in your product, and if I truly, I said, Nikki, I know that it sounds crazy, but if I didn't learn the skill set to persuade you or at least communicate the value enough so you could make a clear decision, if I didn't carry myself in a way that felt credible so that you I could build trust with you, I don't blame you for not wanting to do that. I just saw a class and I presented it in a horrible way. I wouldn't buy that either. But shame on me for not learning the tools of, of presentation and being credible, because now I'm doing the world no good by being non-persuasive. In fact, I'm hurting people. I cost you your life, potentially. And so <clears throat> the, the same is true of a friend of mine that was selling, uh, every, every good salesperson has this story. He was selling, he sold long-term healthcare insurance, and he got to his friend's house for dinner, and and it came out that his dad had a, a, an illness that he was going to be fighting, and it was going to be really difficult. And he goes, the moment the, the topic came up, his heart sunk through the floor because he knew what was going to happen next. His, his, his best friend says, Mom, Dad, Scott has a solution for something like this. We were good. And the dad stops and looks at Scott, and he says, what do you got, Scott? And he goes, I'll never forget. I had to tell him that I couldn't help him. It had to be in place prior to diagnosis. And he goes, that wasn't even the hard part. The hard part was listening to the father and what he said next when he said, so were you waiting for something like this to happen before you told me about it? And it was another reminder that if we really are doing something good, if we really believe in what it is that we're doing, then we have an obligation and a calling to be as persuasive, as influential, and as articulate as possible to communicate the fullest value to people so that they can make a, an intelligent decision with full information to truly outline what the potential benefits and the cost are so they can truly weigh it out in the most honest sense to make a best decision for themselves that is the role of a true sales professional and unfortunately there aren't that
1: many out there right now
0: that's the truth
1: yeah i mean i guess you have to avoid the tendency to try to force a message in or use gimmicks and, and tools and and really truly be like you said like persuasive and part of that comes i think in my experience or where i've seen it done really well is like a opening with intense curiosity and like what are your thoughts about you know that angle and and seeking to understand as deeply as you can so that you know what the solution or the correct solution is to offer
2: I I'm a big fan of it, listening and 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 here's the thing is that people buy for their own reasons, not ours. And so I need to learn what is important to them, why they're doing something. And the more I can understand that, the more they'll tell me why they will or they won't buy something, or why they will or they won't move forward with something, why they will or they won't come work for me. It's the more I listen and <clears throat> you might learn something about them. <laughs> You know, God forbid, I might learn something about somebody that that either might even say I shouldn't sell this to them. You know, there's times where I, I, I listen. I'm like, no, this is not the time for them to do this. They probably should do something else first, and then I can help them out. And you know, that to me, it's it's the approach of thinking career based instead of sales transaction based. I want to build a long term career versus just make a sale today. And I want to I want to build a career. I want to build a long term relationship versus just make money. Or get what I want. And so the to your to your point is being able to listen to what's happening. One, you also get to tailor a solution. You know, the the extreme example is you go into the doctor and you say, I'm in pain. And the doctor says, Okay, take this. And you go, Well, aren't you gonna ask me a few questions first? Like, what's this for? You don't even know where it hurts. Like you want somebody to to diagnose before they do a prognosis. And somebody once said a prognosis before diagnosis is malpractice. And it's the same thing. And when we're offering solutions, consulting, whatever it is that we do, uh, we really should take the time to fully understand the scenario before we offer any advice.
0: I think what I hear in, in, in everything you're saying is your dedication to Honing your craft and teaching other people to do that. My experience in having the privilege to get to know amazing people like you is that that always comes from somewhere. So, what's what's your story, Renee? Why why are you so passionate about this?
2: Probably because I'm too insecure to get it wrong. (sighs) If I'm if I'm really honest,
0: say more about that. What uh, does that mean?
2: Well, you know, I think I sit back and I go, why why do I put in the hours? Why do I? sit there and I record voices why do I practice you know quality of voice why did I practice body language and it was probably because so many years I messed it up and so many years I wasn't good at it so many years I was the guy that couldn't tell a joke nobody would laugh the girls wouldn't talk to me you know there's all sorts of things that happened the pain involved in not being somebody that had any level of influence and you know it's the, the there's a lot of different drivers in life and I think the more I get into the science of it I start realizing that there's there's actually some beauty in the in the stick you know this is the carrot which is great but we respond pretty well to the fear of of something and why not utilize that you know i know that you know, somebody was saying how do i get past the the fear of starting and i said well because you're thinking of the fear of starting and you're forgetting of the fear of not doing and the result and the consequence of not doing and i created this visual if you can imagine if you know i'm standing between there's something I'm, I'm, between there's me and in front of me is a goal and between me and that goal is the fear of getting started May, i might look stupid it might be awkward so all these things are pressing against me from starting and i started thinking about what if i could take that same fear and i could put it behind me to push me towards it meaning instead of saying you know it's going to be awkward if we do this i might look silly in the beginning and if i put if i put it behind me this it changes fr- it changes from Oh man, I have to face my kids and tell them that I didn't amount to much. And I imagine that conversation. And now that's behind me, chasing me towards the goal. You better run towards that goal, Renee, or you're going to look like a fool on camera. Okay. You better run towards that goal. Like I've, I've lost, you know, almost 60, 70 pounds. Uh, in
0: wow.
1: Congratulations. The, yeah. That's thanks. amazing.
2: Yeah. I was surprised to say I met you guys. And not 70, but a good 30, 40, but since I met you guys. But you know, I used to be a college athlete. I was in great shape and I just, I let it all go. And I was like, oh, I just don't. There's all this fear in the beginning. I'm like, you know what? Hold on a second. At some point, it doesn't matter how good my content is, people are not going to give me the pass anymore if I can't even control my own disciplines. Mm. And your body is that billboard. I can lie to you about the numbers that I make. I can write a book and get all these accolades, but your body does not lie. If you are out of shape, we know what you've been doing. I know what I've been doing. You know what I've been doing if I'm out of shape. I've been eating too much and not moving enough, period. And so I was like, shoot, okay. And so then I started imagining what that would look like. And man, it becomes a a push instead of something pushing against me. It pushes me towards it. So think about the thing you fear and, and reframe that to put it behind you. And I think that's one of the keys to it.
0: What I like love that. about what you just said is I tell people often in any type of leadership, whether you're a leader in an organization, whether you're a leader at home to your kids, whether you're a leader in your community, whatever it is, we, we have to first lead, by, lead ourselves by example. And so I was talking to uh, a coaching client the other day, and they asked me, they're, they're basically trying to make the decision whether or not they're going to move for a big position. And they were talking about, well, this is, this is my dream job, and this is my, my dream opportunity, and I can't stomach the idea of moving my kids. I'd be taking them away from the home that they always knew, or have always known. And I said, well, alternatively, you're also showing them that you're not going to go and chase your dreams and you're going to say no to this thing that you've worked so hard for. They're watching that too by the way. And so I love what you just said because I think often we get stuck in what I call the outer world and 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 how other people might perceive us and and how we might be uh you know how how they might take our movement or whatever it is and we forget that people are watching what we do. They're watching our actions and that's really how people lead, which is what I see from you and how eloquently you speak and how you present you're you're literally leading by example mm.
2: I, I love how you turn that around and it's and I think that's what we do that's where we truly serve people is reminding them of what's going to happen if they don't and somebody asked me you know it's it's a simple conversation of Renee what does it cost to bring you in and I always respond I say to bring me in or not bring me in and I usually don't smile. Sometimes I'll smile a little bit and just because I want to break the pattern of a stupid conversation and the stupid conversation is to talk about price first. And there's, why are we talking about price in the absence of value? It doesn't make any sense. Anything in the absence of value is too expensive. And so it, it doesn't matter what this conversation is. I said, what are we trying to solve for? And let's identify that first because here last I checked if, if what I'm doing, if it costs to bring me in costs you more than the value that I bring, you're just not going to do it because you're a smart business person and you won't bring me in. So it's going to cost you nothing. But if you've identified something that I can solve we identify a solution that far exceeds the cost of bringing me in, then the difference of those two is either a benefit to you or a cost for not doing it. It's one or the other. And so I think the conversation is, is what are we trying to solve for and what value are we trying to bring? And then my job would be to make sure that my solution, my investment is far less than the value that I bring. And if you don't do it, you won't pay me. And now some people say, that's a great script, and a closing script, yeah, it is. And it's pretty high conversion. But it's an honest conversation. And it also gets us to the point of identifying value. And it closes pretty high because if we identify there is no value to be created, there's no discussion or need to close. It's a simple business decision. And usually I can advise them. I said, why don't we just spend five minutes and I'll help you with this issue. And you can just, you can just, you know, think of me, I'm a cool guy. And there's a lot of times I just say, you know what? You don't need to bring me in. They go, let me just show you something. Grab the pen. And we just go through it. I remember somebody asked me, to, they wanted to hire me to write their best man speech. And we were in the green room. And they go, I'll, I'll bring you in. I'll fly in. I really, I go, I go grab a piece of paper. And they go, what do you mean? I said, I walked them through a few questions. And I said, I want you to think this. And I drew a couple circles. And I said, I want you to come up with three stories on this. I'll be back in two minutes do this i said Now i want you to come up with three attributes on this and i come back i'll be back in five minutes okay now i want you to come back with what are the three things that you want these people to walk away from remember now you are an advocate for the entire family and everybody there you're the voice for all of them what do you think everybody wants them to say and i'll be back in five minutes i come back and i said i'm gonna give you three transition phrases between this story and the story and the story and I, and I go there's your speech and he's like and he sat there and he's in shock he started crying and he's like I could have paid you with that. I said, why? I said, we could we just solved it now. I said, it's pretty cool, isn't it? And he came back, he wrote me this long, he got me a card, it was really cool. But like, you know, he didn't need to pay me to do that. In fact, the stories that like I can tell is probably more valuable than the time that I, you know, the money he would have paid. That's
1: well, that long and game just, you're talking about.
2: Exactly. It is a long game. 30 years now of a long
0: game. On that note, Renee, I do think you need to prop up a course on teaching people to Give better best man and bridesmaid speeches as as personally as someone who has attended more weddings than I care to count. I think it's it's your next class.
2: We were just talking about that. There's two things that I'm asked uh, in the last couple of years. One is I've helped write four eulogies, and I I think it's three or four best man speeches. And I was thinking about that, and even toasts, which are kind of the same thing. And so I was thinking about that. I'm like, you know, I think you're right. I think there is. Some even maybe just maybe it's got to be like a simple YouTube video, uh, on how to do all that. So, I think I'm going to take you up on that. I think
0: could can. have used
1: you four months ago. Jeez. <laughs> I was
0: gonna say, Chris Chris is a newlywed, he needed you.
1: Hey, awesome, congratulations! <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate it. You can uh, always do it again. <laughs> I'm gonna go for one and done on this one. That's that's the game plan. <laughs> <laughs> you sure?
0: <laughs> I was yeah. about to say yes before I really thought that one through. I
2: love it, I love it.
0: So I'd love to know. This is a personal question for me. You are you are so definitive in how you speak, so articulate, so clear. And I think sometimes when you have that presence and when you have that power, you can often be intimidating. And and yet, so much of what you do is facilitation. Do you find that showing up at all? And how do you work through that?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> um, a lot. So it, it's kind of I went on a journey of that. So that used to be I used to be very robotic in. Because I'm a technic, technic, the technical side of learning anything is really important to me, and so when I played basketball, I was extremely technical. And to me, it was there was something about <clears throat> the fundamentals and really, really honing in on the fundamentals of something was was fun. It's something that really meant a lot. And then I became so technical that I became unapproachable. And then I, I decided I'd go kind of on the opposite end and <clears throat> excuse me, self deprecating humor and and things which I still do, but. You know, then I got to the point where I was, it was too much of that. And then I wasn't taken as serious and then people would forget. And then all of a sudden game time came and they'd saw that side of me and they'd be like, okay, I refer- oh yeah, Renee does know what he's talking about. And I think recently I got to the point where, <clears throat> and I'm kind of dealing with this myself is I'm in such a philosophical mode on so many things. My kids call me a philosopher more than anything. And I philosophize on everything. And I think, okay, what does this mean? Where did that come from? Why would that be that case? Well, if I did it this way, how would that work? And well, how does this apply to, to this law that I read about? Well, how does it apply? Actually, I read this passage in the Bible. Does that really, it seems contradictory. But then I saw this person who said this thing. And I'm constantly sort of cross-referencing all these things. And so my brain is always in thought mode. And it made some of my, bore- my videos quite frankly um, boring, but highly stimulating mentally if you're into the intellectual side. It's pretty good. But I, I think that there's, there's two sides of it. One is I do take my work very seriously. And the reason is, is because I charge a lot. So I've got to bring a lot to the table. And so, you know, I, I don't drink when I go on the road. I, I'm actually, shoot, I spoke 237 days last year. So I basically just had to stop drinking, which is great. I've never felt better, but I take the work very seriously when it comes to the work. And the, if you know me personally, I'm the biggest goofball you ever meet. You know, I, I'm, I'm as laid back as they come. I don't really. I'm very carefree. I don't stress. I don't have. I don't worry about things I can't control. Uh, but it's it's people forget. I think people can take it wrong. But when I meet them, I I tried my best to to um, be as open as I can. I think the other thing people are intimidated by is the 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 more I do this, the more of an introvert I've become. And so I'm an extreme introvert. And so I don't usually. Uh, thrive in the big environments unless i'm working if i'm working i'm fine if it's personal i'm usually pretty quiet
0: Mm. we understand that as (laughs) as two people who have to also attend quite a quite a few events they can can tire you out a bit right so ultimately you you want to save your energy and save the conversations
2: yeah i think it's me learning how to um adapt in those environments and remind myself that not everything's work. And so it's, you know, when you speak that often, you're also always working. And so then, you know, how do you get out of it? It's, it's all those, but we, you know, we've got, we've got big goals. We've got a lot of things to do. We're very purpose-driven. And so the work is, is um, it's, it's kind of engulfing in a lot of senses. So it's, it's got its ups and its downs and um, I wouldn't change it though. I, I love everything about what we do. I love these kinds of conversations. I love being stimulated. I love being challenged with new questions and, but, um, you know, it's, if I'm in an environment where I'm in a persuasive environment, <clears throat> I am, I'm very, very heightenedly aware that, um, of, you know, people feeling intimidated versus feeling welcome. And so I spent a lot of time on creating psychological safety and, and, and comfort. Usually I'll do that through vulnerability or a personal story. So I do share a lot of personal stories, um, uh, around things to, to show the reality that, yeah, I yeah, I put a lot of work into this, but I am by far, far from perfect. And I just can seem like it sometimes because I just I, I'm good at shutting up during the places that I don't know when I what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's probably that's, why I'm quiet often because I don't what
0: know. What's that? I said that's a skill in and of itself.
2: Yeah. Yeah. For
0: sure. That's for another podcast.
2: Anytime.
1: I liked what you said though around, uh, when you're out on the road, you're doing it all the time. It's like, it's, it's far easier to switch it off. It's like, it's kind of like, I don't know if you like work out in the morning and get your, get your workout in throughout the day, it takes the edge off a little bit. Cause you just already feel that sense of accomplishment. But I do relate to what you're saying, where if you want to get to a place where you can be comfortable, uh, switching it on, switching it off, it's like, go get the workout in, go do the reps, like go get to a place where you're, you're letting it out so that you don't feel the need to spill out of you and and pour out in circumstances where it may not even be appropriate or it's kind of over the top.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, being on the road, <clears throat> prioritizing, you know, prioritizing diet, sleep, salt, water, um, and exercise. It's funny. It's like, they go, what do you prioritize? How'd you lose on the road? I like, I go, well, I, I used to prioritize the content and time with clients i prioritize now food you know how i eat the exercise and so i I always have identified a gym before i go salt intake water intake and magically the content kind of works itself out and so it's Mm. it's if i can do that but if i don't i mean i'll show you before and after pictures and you'll be like whoa it's pretty it's pretty drastic
0: i think there's a pretty common theme and thread that we see with people who who achieve greatly that in order to demand from their body what they do, they have to be physically capable of doing that type of tra- travel schedule or that type of thinking or that type of deep work or whatever it is for them. That's a that's pretty common, and I think that when you're trying to perform at the highest level and your body's not there with you, ultimately s- something has to give. Either those people end up getting in shape, they end up go- hitting those health goals, or the the work ends up falling.
2: Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I neglected it for too many years. You know, just like recently, I I was at an event, the forward event with my good friend, Neil Dingra. And at this event, it was me, Ed Milette, Jesse Itzler. We had uh, Chris Doe and uh, Bradley and a bunch of other really great speakers and three days in Vegas. And then uh, I had to leave and I got back, I think at 10 o'clock at night to leave uh, the next morning, four in the morning for DC. This was yesterday to do an event yesterday in DC, and then get, as soon as the event was over, jump back on a plane, delayed flights, get back at home at midnight to prepare, prepare for, actually 11 o'clock, to prepare for a huge event, you know, that was happening today, and so we're up again at five, and webinar for 2,000 people, making sure all the tech was right, and, and we're doing a completely new presentation, uh, and all sorts of new things, and then and, and getting there, and then you know, doing that and giving it everything you have and then eating and then doing this. And it's, people forget that your, your mind is associated to the body. And so if I'm, even though people say I'm not, I'm not running up and down a court, I'm running up and down a, you know, you know, a the you know, airport, but it's also, you're getting a little bit less sleep during those, those sprints and you've got to be able to function. And if my body isn't functioning, my brain isn't functioning. And so all of those things really, really come into play. And when I was talking to, as it was about 100 people that were going to, to, to the Capitol to go talk to lobbyists about specific, three specific bills that they were trying to get passed. And I was, they asked me to come and help them tell their story in 30 seconds. Ended to lead to a 15-minute conversation and how do they do that. And at the end of this, I said, now, you guys are on, tomorrow it's game time. And I said, and you're here tonight in D.C. So you have choices tonight. I said, you could have a great time tonight. and they got some great bars. You got, you're with your friends, you're traveling, you're away from family. I said, you could go out there and have an amazing time tonight. I said, or you can go home and get some sleep. Review the notes today. Go in front of the mirror, practice, get a cohort, and go to dinner and discuss what you're gonna be doing tomorrow. Get, get to bed early. Don't drink so you're sharp tomorrow. Now, I know that's not as fun and as exciting but for the night, but I tell you, you know what's fun and exciting? Being the one that shows up to the game and winning. There's nothing, nothing as exciting as that. And to get to that place, you got to say no to some things. And I'm not saying go have fun, but I, I will know and we will all know who are the ones that are going to win tomorrow. And we'll know that tonight. And so I kind of wanted to kind of re, help people rethink. Not that I want to be the, you know, the fun police. Because trust me, I love doing that too. But I wanted to help them think bigger because everybody complains about where they're at, but they're unwilling to make those little sacrifices in the moment for tomorrow. Things that you that if you can do those things today that most are unwilling to do, then soon will come to the day that you can do things that people are unable to do. That little mantra, that little philosophy, is so powerful. When and, and easy to talk about because you're in the moment. But when the moment comes, man, that's when the that's when the real decision, the the defining moment of who you are. That's when it happens.
0: I mean, given your ba- basketball background, it always makes me think of, I'm sure everyone has heard the story of Kobe when the team would travel, that the team would be going out that night and he would be walking in from, from them leaving to go out, he'd be walking in to go to the gym and it's, it's, he, uh, he stood for excellence. And, and so he showed up as, as the excellent do, and he didn't feel that that was going to help him to perform the next day.
2: I love that story. Yeah. He's like, he, he, one of the players was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to show the team that I'm ready. He gets up at nine o'clock to get in the gym. Or say like seven o'clock to get in the gym, and Kobe's already being iced down from his first workout.
1: <laughs> Mamba mentality. That's right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, we always close this out, Renee, with what's the one thing? If you could tell our listeners to take one thing away from this conversation, one thing away from from your work, what would that what would that one thing be? What's the most important thing that they could take away from from you?
2: You know, uh, I'll, I'll end with this. That there are too many people out there unintentionally leading people the wrong way when it comes to achieving greatness. It's not easy. And it's full of suffering. It's full of sacrifice. Somebody once said, you know, hey, you hear this quote all the time. It says, Hey, if you if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I just did this tweet, put it on my threads. I'm like, you know, see, that's a myth. The truth is, uh, do what you love and you'll work harder every single day, and you'll do things it will push yourself because, not because you're not scared, but because you love the work. You'll stay up later. You'll work harder. And so doing something that's great requires sacrifice. It requires you to run through fires of of self-doubt. It's hard to look in the mirror and say, man, I didn't do good today and I'm failing my vision. I'm failing my dreams and then get up and go back and push harder. That's hard to do. And so don't be afraid of the suffering. Don't be afraid because everything that we've suffered for on the other side of that is something fantastic. There's nothing good that you've accomplished in this life that came easy. Value is actually defined by the difficulty you, got, you, you had to go through to get to it. The sacrifice and the scarcity. And so in a market like what we're in right now, take a look at the amount of people that are suffering and those that aren't working. Instead, realize that everyone's suffering. I'm just going to work harder. I'm going to push more. Yeah, it might take you three times the effort to do this, but this is a cycle. It'll turn around, but that work ethic will compound on itself and gift you back results for the rest of your life. So learn to enjoy the suffering. Learn to enjoy and start realizing that suffering isn't really suffering. Suffering is the beautiful expression of who we are. And is a great quote um, that I heard, I don't even know if it's a quote, something I've come up with. I mean, somebody was asked me, do you wanna be the one when the flood comes, the one who built the ark or the one who who, who needs a ride? I wanna be the one who built something. I want to be able to add value in people's time of need. And for me to do that, I've got to work hard, suffer sacrifice and build something so that I can actually be of service.
0: So beautiful. I love your, your simple and honest approach to everything that you teach and, and to this conversation today. So thank you. Where can people find you if they want to learn more?
2: Uh, Instagram is easy. Learn with Renee, R E R-E-N-E. N E. My, uh, you can follow me there. We do a, an educational video every single day. And, um, uh, TikTok's the same way. We've just surpassed a million followers on TikTok, which is kind of fun. And our website, meetrene.com. And everything that we do is on our website. So reach out and, and do all that sort of stuff. And if you're listening to this, follow what these two here are doing. They're doing, they're at the leading edge on all of the good stuff on what's happening in this industry. So uh, I'm going to be following you guys for sure.
0: Thank you. you Pleasure to speak with you today. Thank
2: you. Likewise. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to The One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There you'll find information on -on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing dot com. We'll see you next week.